get the tales of the old west where you can learn about real outlaws like john wesley harden he once shot a man for snoring Howdy, you're listening to Come and Take It, a talk show about Texas by Texans, where three friends born and raised in the Lone Star State share our views on the history, culture, and just what it means to be Texan. I'm Mike Zolkowski. I'm Sean McIver. And I'm Scott Elfstrom. Famous for having once killed a man just because he snored, John Wesley Harden's self-promoted legend was no doubt larger than the man himself. Still, there is no denying that he was a remorseless and deadly killer with the blood of dozens of men on his hands. He was in many ways a personification of Texas's tumultuous and tragic years after the Civil War. This week, we look at the short and deadly life of John Wesley Harden. But first, who is your favorite fictional Texas outlaw? You know, there's been a lot of good outlaws in uh, Texas-related fiction, but um, I'm going to go with a double and that's going to be Seth and Richard Gecko from from Dust Till Dawn, <laughs> uh, played by George Clooney and uh, Quentin Tarantino. Mm. Uh, they were a delightful pair of uh, happy-go-lucky robbers that uh, meet an ignominious end in Mexico. Well, if you haven't well, seen half it, of, half of half of them does. Half of them do. If you haven't seen it, uh, the the series is actually quite good too. If you happen to have El Rey on your uh, cable provider channels, uh, I am going to jump in and say one Mister Raleigh Wilkes, played by David Carradine, in of course the greatest film ever made, which is Lone Wolf McQuaid, <laughs> which ignores. Uh, not only is he uh, fantastic, he uh, he gets in a tank, and Chuck Norris gets in a bulldozer. Uh, they fight with handguns and machine uh, machine guns and hand grenades. They uh, they there's karate and jujitsu and uh, I don't know Norris Fu, uh, Chuck Fongdo or whatever his specialty is. But uh, it's it's an awesome movie. Oh no, he wears like yellow like sweaters and hagar slacks and like white <laughs> slip on like it's 1983 he looks he looks like yeah. 1983 it's it's yeah. just great he's and he's a terrible he's a terribly bad man so he's played yeah. well but he is very much like he's like a members only jacket it's it's very time locked <laughs> well i can only go with uh, one character who's i don't know if he's really an outlaw but i'm going to go with leatherface from texas chainsaw massacre <laughs> Oh, that's a good one. He, he he definitely is he definitely is as bloodthirsty as John Wesley Harden. Literally bloodthirsty. I, I would consider him an outlaw. Yeah, maniac slash outlaw. <laughs> <laughs> not a not a traditional choice, but no. I'll go with it. John Wesley Harden was born in 1853 near Bonham, northeast of Dallas. His father was a circuit riding Methodist preacher named James Gip Harden. John Wesley himself was named after the founder of Methodism. Legend has it that the midwife who delivered him predicted that John Wesley would either turn out to be a great hero or a monumental villain. For the early years of his life, his father traveled over much of north and central Texas on the preacher circuit. John Wesley clearly idolized his mother Mary Elizabeth Dixon, and in his autobiography he described her as, quote, blonde, highly cultured, while charity predominated in her disposition. In 1859, the family settled in Sumter, Texas, where Gipp established a school 
that all nine Hardin children attended. If Hardin's autobiography is anything to believe, his first exposure to lethal violence came in 1861 when he was eight years old. He wrote about witnessing a man named John Ruff stab another man named Turner Evans after Evans drunkenly threatened Ruff over a debt he was owed. Evans eventually died from his injuries, and Ruff spent several years in jail. Although he obviously didn't take his own advice to heart, he wrote about the incident, quote, Readers, you see what drink and passion will do. If you wish to be successful in life, be temperate and control your passion. If you don't, ruin and death is the result. A year later, when he was only nine years old, John Wesley tried to run away from home to join the Confederate Army, but his father caught wind of the scheme and stopped him. Hmm. Hardin's own violent streak was demonstrated early on. Despite being run by a preacher, his father's school was apparently a pretty rough place. When he was 14, Hardin was accused by another student, Charles Slaughter, of writing a poem insulting one of the female students on the schoolhouse wall. Hardin claimed his accuser was the author, prompting Slaughter to charge at Hardin with a knife. He missed his target, but Hardin didn't, and stabbed Slaughter with his own knife, nearly killing him. Whether it was because the other boy attacked first, or because his father ran the school, Hardin managed to avoid punishment over the incident. It would not be much longer before this violent streak escalated to a lethal level. In 1868, Hardin was visiting his uncle Barnett Hardin, and he challenged a former slave named Mage to a wrestling match. Mage had formerly belonged to Barnett's brother-in-law and occasionally worked for the Hardin family. John Wesley won the match and infuriated the former slave, who had to be stopped from attacking him again by Hardin's cousin, who had watched the match. The next day, when Hardin went to visit a friend of his father's, Mage ambushed him with a large stick. Hardin shot Mage five times with his revolver. Now, if Hardin's autobiography is to be believed, he rode to get the man help. He returned with Mage's former owner, Judge Hallhausen, and when they arrived, Mage was still alive, but called Hardin a liar. John Wesley said, quote, If it had not been for my uncle, I would have shot him again. The judge sent John Wesley back to his family, knowing that Mage would die from his wounds, which he did three days later. Hardin later wrote that his father didn't believe he'd get a fair trial for his killing in this Reconstruction era Texas. And we've talked about the confused and bitter environment at the time in past episodes. During that period, more than a third of the state police were former slaves. And according to Hardin in his biography, all the courts were then conducted by bureau agents and renegades who were inveterate enemies of the South. Hardin's father no doubt expected them to jump at the chance for retribution against a man whose relatives had formerly owned slaves. Now, whether this was the case at the time or not depends on what perspective you look at. It certainly fit John Wesley Hardin's narrative to state that his family believed that, quote, the killing of a Negro would mean a guaranteed conviction by the courts. Accordingly, John Wesley's father ordered him to go into hiding rather than face justice. Hardin was not able to escape detection forever, and the authorities eventually found him. Three Union soldiers were sent to arrest him. Despite being warned by his older brother Joseph that they were coming, John didn't try to escape but chose to confront his pursuers. John attacked the men, later describing the incident. I waylaid them, as I had no mercy on men whom I knew only wanted to get my body to torture and kill. It was war to the knife for me, and I brought it on by opening the fight with a double-barreled shotgun and ended it with a cap-and-ball six-shooter. Thus it was, by the fall of 1868, I had killed four men and was myself wounded in the arm. 
After killing three soldiers, the question of whether or not his killing of Mage could be considered self-defense in a court of law was now a moot point. Hardin knew that he couldn't go home, and so he fell in with an outlaw, Frank Polk, in North Central Texas for a time. Polk had killed a man named Brady, and a detachment of soldiers out of Corsicana pursued them. Hardin managed to escape their pursuit, but Polk was captured. Amazingly, while he was in the Navarro area and running with outlaws, Hardin was able to get a job teaching school in the town of Pisgah. He also found time to continue his streak of violence. Now, he claimed he shot out a man's eye to win a bottle of whiskey. He's also believed to have been involved at this time in the extremely bloody Lee Peacock feud in the Four Corners counties north of Dallas. We talked about this feud in part two of our Reconstruction in Texas episode series last year. Now, Hardin claimed that he and his cousin Simp Dixon, who was one of the key members of the anti-union group in the feud, encountered a group of Union soldiers and each killed one of them. Finally, he allegedly killed a black man in Leon County during this period as well. On January 5, 1870, Hardin was playing cards with a man named Benjamin Bradley in Toash, north of Waco. Bradley got upset with Hardin's winning streak and threatened to cut out Hardin's liver if he won again. To show he meant business, Bradley drew a knife and a revolver. Hardin was unarmed at the time and excused himself. He claimed that, later that night, Bradley came looking for him and fired a shot, but missed. Hardin, now fully armed of course, drew both his pistols and returned fire, hitting the man in the head and chest. There were dozens of people on hand to see this fight, and there's a good record of how Hardin carried and used his guns. His holsters were sewn into his vest with the butts of his pistols pointed inwards across his chest. Hardin simply crossed his arms to pull his pistols and claimed that this was the fastest way to draw. He was even made faster by the fact that he practiced every single day. The incident wasn't completely over, though. After Hardin killed Bradley, a posse of 15 men was sent after him. He claims that he captured two of them and took their weapons before sending them back to join the rest of their group. He told them to wait for him to come along, and he later wrote, quote, I reckon they're waiting for me yet. <laughs> hmm. hmm. January of 1870 proved a busy month for John Wesley Hardin. After his encounter with Bradley and the events thereafter, he claimed that on the 20th, he killed a man in a gunfight after an argument at a circus. Less than a week later, he was escorting a saloon girl home when her pimp accosted him. The pimp demanded money from Hardin, who complied by throwing it on the ground, and when the man bent over to pick it up, he shot him. A year later, in January of 1871, Hardin was arrested for killing Waco Marshal Laban John Hoffman. This is one of the few murders Hardin denies committing, though that is perhaps because he was actually arrested for it. Following his arrest, he was held in a log jail in Marshall while awaiting to be transferred to Waco for a trial. And while in this jail, he bought a revolver from another prisoner, which, of course, <laughs> when in jail, you should try to buy a pistol from a fellow inmate. You get all sorts of stuff in jail. I mean, it is Texas now, so. Two Texas state policemen, Captain Edward T. Stakes and Officer Jim Smalley, served as Hardin's escort to Waco. Now, according to Hardin, they tied him to a horse without a saddle for the trip. While they were making camp along the way, Stakes went to get fodder for the horses. Hardin said that while he was left with Smalley, the policeman began beating him with the butt of his pistol. Hardin pretended to cry at the rough treatment. He huddled against his horse and, his actions hidden by the animal, drew his pistol and shot Smalley. He then stole the other man's horse, I guess to get his saddle, and made his getaway. 
Hardin hid with his cousins, the Clements, in Gonzales, Texas. They suggested that he could make money as a cowboy by driving cattle to Kansas. Hardin saw this as an opportunity to get out of Texas long enough for the law to forget about him. Of course, a man who would kill someone at a circus is not particularly bound by law or morality, so it's no surprise that Hardin didn't go about doing the cowboy thing legally. Instead, he claimed he and his cousins wrestled the cattle they were going to drive, and he was made a trail boss because of his wrestling skills. Hardin's violent temper was never far away, even when he was trying to walk the straight and narrow line. In February, while they were collecting animals for the drive, one of the cowboys, a freedman named Bob King, attempted to cut a cow from the herd. When he refused to listen to orders to stop, Hardin hit him over the head with his pistol. Later that month, he wounded three Mexicans over a three-card Monte game, pistol-whipping one and shooting the other two. This violent streak had its uses, though. A cattle drive could be a dangerous endeavor, and Hardin reputedly fought vaqueros and other cattle wrestlers on the trip to Kansas. At the end of the drive, a Mexican herd crowded Hardin's, and it became difficult to keep the two sets of animals separated. Hardin and the men in charge of the other herd exchanged words that eventually, and predictably, led to gunplay. The Mexican fired first, Hardin later said, and shot a hole through Hardin's hat. Hardin's gun malfunctioned when he tried to return fire, and he had the dismount to steady the pieces of his pistol enough to shoot. When he did, he hit the other man in the thigh. A truce was declared, and the parties went their separate ways. Hardin, of course, could not leave well enough alone. He borrowed another pistol, and he hunted the Mexican man down, killing him that night. This started a firefight between the two camps. Hardin claimed that he killed five vaqueros himself, and at least one more was slain. This is apparently one of Hardin's many exaggerations, as only three of the Mexican men were killed. Those were not the only claims Hardin made regarding that drive that were blown out of proportion. He also claimed to have killed two Native Americans in separate incidents. At the end of the drive, Hardin and one of his companions got into an argument with someone that was not a fan of Texas. This left his companion wounded in the arm and the dirty anti-Texan shot through the mouth. On July 4, 1871, a Texas trail boss named William Coron was killed on the Cottonwood Trail by an unnamed Mexican who fled south. Hardin claimed he and another cowboy tracked that man down and killed him in a Kansas restaurant on July 20th. Hardin had brushes with fame even before his reputation for being mean was set. While in Abilene, he was approached by Ben Thompson, who wanted Hardin to kill Wild Bill Hickok, the famous lawman, due to a disagreement over the questionable decoration of Thompson's business, the Bull's Head Tavern, and Hickok's alteration of that decoration as part of his role as town marshal. Trying to incite Hardin, he told the young man that Hickok was, quote, a damn Yankee, picks on rebels, especially Texans to kill. Hardin either respected or feared Hickok and answered, quote, if Bill needs killing, why don't you kill him yourself? He was confronted by Hickok that night and had to hand his weapons over to the marshal. Fortunately, Hickok did not know Hardin was a wanted man since he was going variably by either Wesley Clemens or the name Arkansas at the time. Hickok simply warned him to stay out of trouble while you're in Abilene. The two famous gunslingers met again in August 1871, and Hickok had seemed to have developed some respect for Hardin in return, although he didn't really know who he was. Hardin was allowed to carry his pistols in town, which was a privilege no other man enjoyed. 
Hardin was fascinated by Wild Bill and loved the idea that he was seen to be friends with such a celebrated gunfighter. Hardin alleged that when his cousin was jailed for killing two men, Hickok arranged his escape at John Wesley's request. Perhaps Hardin's most famous killing, and the one that firmly established his reputation even after his death, came on August 6, 1871. He and two other men checked in at an Abilene hotel right after a night of drinking and gambling. Hardin and his cousin Gip Clements shared a room while their friend, Charles Cougar, took the one next door. Cougar's snoring was so loud that Hardin was awakened even with a wall between them. He yelled at the man to roll over several times but got no response and no relief. He became so irritated that he drunkenly fired several shots through the wall into the other room. One of these shots hit Cougar in the head and killed him instantly. Cougar! (laughs) Hardin knew that he would face Wild Bill Hickok's wrath, if for no other reason than firing his guns within city limits. Also, he just killed a man. He and Gip, half drunk and dressed, hurried out of a second-story window to escape. They got out just in time to see Hickok arrive with four policemen. Hardin leapt from the roof into the street and then hid in a haystack for the rest of the night. He stole a horse and made his way back to his cow camp. He claimed to have ambushed three deputies along the way, but did not kill them, merely forcing them to remove their clothing and walk back to Abilene. Hardin later wrote, quote, Now I believed that if Wild Bill found me in a defenseless condition, he would take no explanation, but would kill me to add to his reputation. A contemporary news report of the shooting noted that a man was killed in his bed at a hotel in Abilene Monday night by a desperado called Arkansas. The murderer escaped. This was his sixth murder. The killing cemented Hardin's reputation. He'd always be known as the man so mean he once shot a man for snoring. Now, ironically, given the fame he earned from it, this may be the only man Hardin ever killed that he didn't really mean to, and he seemed to regret it afterwards. He later claimed, quote, They tell lots of lies about me. They say I killed six or seven men for snoring. Well, it ain't true. I only killed one man for snoring. As if that makes it better, John Wesley. Later, he contradicted even this. In his autobiography, he claimed the man he killed at first tried to stab him during a burglary attempt to steal his pants. (laughs) They're pretty valuable pants back then. (laughs) By early 1872, Hardin was back in south-central Texas. He married a young woman named Jane Bowen and became friends with her brother, cattle rustler Robert Bowen. He also renewed his friendship with more of his cousins, who were allied with the local Taylor family, the sons of the legendary Texas Ranger Creed Taylor. As we've discussed, these family connections would entwine him in one of the other great Reconstruction-era feuds in Texas, the Sutton-Taylor feud. On August 7th, he was gambling again and was wounded by a shotgun blast due to a dispute at the Gate Saloon in Trinity. Two buckshot pellets penetrated his kidney, and for a short time it seemed he might die. This was a wake-up call for Hardin, and while recuperating, he decided to settle down. He surrendered to Sheriff John Henniger Reagan from his sickbed, handing over his guns, and asked to be tried for his crimes in order to clear the slate. After the surrender, he was accidentally shot in the knee by a nervous deputy. Hardin's change of heart didn't last long, though. When he learned of how many murders he was actually going to be charged with, he escaped by cutting through the bars of a prison window with a hacksaw smuggled to him by a relative. Hardin became involved in the Sutton-Taylor feud after escaping, and he's rumored to be involved in the killing of Jim Cox and Jake Crispin at Tomlinson Creek. 
Being unusually quiet on the subject, Hardin never confirmed or denied this. Now, what is definite is that Hardin cl- killed two lawmen allied with the Sutton family. In May 1873, he killed DeWitt County Deputy Sheriff J.B. Morgan, and in July, killed his boss, Sheriff Jack Helms. He also claimed he was involved in the killing of Billy Sutton and of Gabriel Slaughter in March 1874, which intensified the feud. And if you want to know more about the Sutton-Taylor feud, listen to our episode about the Sutton-Taylor feud. Hardin, his wife, and their young daughter visited Florida under the assumed name of Swain, but he was back in Texas on May 26th to celebrate his 21st birthday. Yeah, he was that young. Yeah, he was only 21. Wow. He spotted Deputy Sheriff Charles Webb entering the saloon where he and his friends were celebrating and asked the man if he had come to arrest him. Webb replied that he had not, and Hardin invited him to his hotel for a drink. As Webb followed him inside, Hardin claimed the man drew his gun and one of Hardin's friends called out a warning. Webb was killed in the ensuing gunfight. It's like that uh, scene from South Park. He's coming right for us! <laughs> yeah, he's coming right at us! Webb was a popular lawman, and his death resulted in the rapid formation of a lynch mob to hunt Hardin down. John Wesley Hardin's parents and wife were taken into productive custody, while his brother and two of his cousins were arrested on outstanding warrants. These three men were hanged by the mob in July when a group of local men broke into the jail. After this, Hardin had enough of the Sutton-Taylor feud, and he parted ways with anyone involved with it. On January 20, 1875, the Texas legislature authorized the governor to place a $4,000 bounty on Hardin's head. That's about $85,000 in today's currency. Texas Rangers finally found Hardin when an undercover ranger, Jack Duncan, intercepted a letter between Hardin's father-in-law and brother-in-law, which mentioned he was hiding on the Alabama-Florida border under the assumed name of James W. Swain. The Rangers caught up with him in August 1877, confronting him on a train in Pensacola, Florida. When Hardin realized what was happening, he tried to draw a gun, but it got caught in his suspenders, although he later claimed he was captured while smoking a pipe. Hardin and two of his companions were arrested, while a third companion was killed while resisting arrest. When he returned to Texas, Hardin was tried for Sheriff Webb's murder. He was found guilty and sentenced to 25 years in Huntsville Prison on June 5, 1878. He made several attempts to escape, including one in 1879, when he and several other inmates were stopped from stealing weapons from the armory. Now, while serving his sentence, he was tried for the manslaughter of J.B. Morgan and was given another two years to serve concurrently with his existing 25-year sentence. Hardin eventually adapted to prison life. He read several theological books and became superintendent of the prison's Sunday school. Nonetheless, he had several health problems and was bedridden for two years when his kidney wound became infected again. Also, while Hardin was imprisoned, his wife died. John Wesley Hardin was released from prison on February 17, 1894, after serving 17 years of his sentence. He was 40 years old when he returned to Gonzales, Texas. Later that year, on March 16th, amazingly, he was pardoned by the state for his crimes. On June 21st, he passed the state bar, having spent much of his time in prison studying legal books as well as religious ones. On January 9, 1895, he married his second wife, 15-year-old Callie Lewis. This marriage did not last long, apparently, though it was never legally dissolved. Later that year, Hardin moved to El Paso to finish his biography and open a law practice. 
There, a lawman named John Selman Jr. arrested his girlfriend, a part-time prostitute named Widow Morose. Now, some accounts say it was for brandishing a gun in public. Other accounts say she was targeted because Hardin had hired Selman to kill her husband, one of Hardin's clients, and he had not paid. Whatever the case, the two men argued over the incident, and some accounts claimed Hardin pistol-whipped the other man. Later, Selman's 56-year-old father, John Sr., a constable and a former outlaw and gunfighter himself, confronted Hardin. They exchanged heated words but parted ways without violence. That night on August 19, 1895, Hardin was playing dice at the Acme Saloon when Selman walked up behind him and shot him in the back of the head. Legend has it that Hardin's last words were four sixes to beat, Henry. Although he was already dead, just to make sure, Selman fired three more shots in the body while it laid in the floor. Selman was arrested for murder. He claimed self-defense when he stood trial, stating that he saw Hardin reaching for his gun when he entered the saloon. This defense managed to get him a hung jury on his first trial, and he was released on bond pending a retrial. Before it could be organized, Selman was killed in a shootout with U.S. Marshal George Scarborough on April 6, 1896, during an argument over a card game. Hardin was buried in Concordia Cemetery in El Paso, Texas. After his death, his autobiography was published and became quite popular. Before and after that, though, Hardin was already a popular figure in pulp novels, so the questionable veracity of his own recollections did little to separate fact from his own legend. The Handbook of Texas says about him, though, Hardin was an unusual type of killer, a handsome, gentlemanly man who considered himself a pillar of society, always maintaining that he never killed anyone who did not need killing, and that he always shot to save his own life. Many people who knew him or his family regarded him as a man more sinned against than sinning. And that is one handbook's opinion. (laughs) Hardin was only 42 years old when he died, and he spent 17 years of his life in jail. He committed his first murder in 1868 and was in prison only 10 years later. In that time, he claims to have killed 42 men. And though his own account is undoubtedly exaggerated, it is certain that he killed several dozen men during that time. What there's no doubt about, though, is that he was an exceptionally violent man and he earned the dangerous reputation that he had. John Wesley Harden. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely a name that will continue to live in infamy um, because that's a lot of deaths, regardless of whether his count is accurate or not. You know, you know, when I was growing up, mm-hmm. we always used to laugh and tell stories about preacher's kids uh, <laughs> being the wildest kids in town. But uh, John Wesley Carden takes the cake, I think. Well, you know, it's one of those things that before this project and before we did all this research and kind of came across him, like, I knew him as an outlaw, but I mostly remember him from those Time Life commercials in the 80s where they would be like, get the tales of the Old West where you can learn about real outlaws like John Wesley Harden. He once shot a man for snoring. <laughs> you know, yeah. uh, now, but that's, I mean, it's, that's, anyway, that's what I remember yeah. about him. So Hardin is also a really popular figure in, in uh, Westerns, uh, literature and fiction and, and in films and TV, especially in those old Westerns of the 50s. He was always portrayed as, as that the young guy who had this hair trigger, uh, horrible temper, and you just didn't want to mess with him. And it's interesting, some of the people that played John Wesley Harden in TV shows, Rock Hudson has played him. Um, Randy Quaid played him in a movie in the 90s. 
and uh, Jack Elam played him in the 1970s. And but I think most people, well, actually, people of our generation probably remember the scene in the movie Maverick, the Mel Gibson movie, uh, where the, he's playing cards with a young man played by Max Perlick, and uh, he says, you know, the, the young man's getting mad at him, and he says, "What's your name, son?" And he says, "Johnny, Johnny Harden." <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, so there's just a it's just a good scene, but that's that's kind of the reputation that 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 John Wesley Harden has. You know the yeah. thing that that I think though gets missed about it is, and I remember thinking this when we talked about him in the in the Lee Peacock feud, and when we talked about Sutton Taylor feud, is that one is that he was he was just born. Some people are just born mean, and that's he was born mean. And the other thing is that he was so young. Like, he was, you know, even more fresh-faced than Emilio Estevez in terms of, like, <laughs> fresh-faced killer that I think of, yeah. you know? Yeah. Yeah, I, I'm still hung up on the idea that he was pardoned. And yeah. <laughs> I couldn't, can't find any information on how exactly he managed to get pardoned, but it's... And I think there was that, you know... The point we made, too, during when we talked about the Sutton-Taylor feud is that not only the Taylors, but um, Harden and a lot of these guys, they got by on the political confusion and duress of Reconstruction. Right. And so, True. you know, while the cities of Texas weren't going crazy, uh, the political engine behind Texas was happy to sort of let the state just burn while there was just utter chaos under this new administration. And so the, you know, these antics were triumphed, not just then, but then in later historical sort of, you know, recollections as being these uh, triumphant acts of, uh, you know, defiance against an unjust government. Right. And in the end, it's like, well, you kind of had like, you know, I feel a bit like Mickey and Mallory. Like technically, it's mass murder and not serial killer. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, but really, it's true. But it it also could have been as much as simple as a thing of you know he had served his time and came out of prison, generally speaking, uh, showing that he had reformed and had become a a productive member of society. And so you could gain you could garner a pardon for your crimes through through that type of action. So. It could have been something as simple as that, but it could have been a combination of the two. Yeah. He shot a man at a circus. <laughs> <laughs> Happiest place on earth? I don't think so. Yeah. So his. Uh, so if you're interested in reading his autobiography, it is available for free on Google Books. You can download an ebook for free because it is public domain uh, at this point. So check it out. We'll have a link to it on our uh, on our page. And uh, you could you could read about John Wesley Harden in his own words and see if he if he sounds realistic and truthful or not. That wraps things up for today. You can find notes and links from today's show at brainstable.com. We'd love to hear from you, so like and share us on Facebook, follow the show on Twitter at Texas Podcast, or go to brainstable.com and leave some feedback. You can find our show and many other great history podcasts at historypodcasters.com. And why not follow us individually too? I'm on Twitter at Mr. Java. I'm Max Sean with two ends, and I'm Scotticus. We'd like to thank James Avendroff for helping us to research and write this episode. You can find him on Twitter at Blackguard Press, or find his fiction work at BlackguardPress.com. 
And if you want to become a member of the Come and Take It Nation, head on over to patreon.com slash Podcast and sign up to support us every month and show us how much the show means to you. Now, we know you love this show. We know that it's important. So get out there. Go leave a review on iTunes because it helps us to find other listeners just like you. And also, tell everyone you know about the show. That's how we can grow our audience and tell more people about the great stories from Texas. We hope you'll join us next time. And remember that even if you aren't from Texas, Texas wants you anyway. <laughs>